Welcome to Shift the Gravity, a podcast of Traders Point Christian Church where we talk about what it means to be followers of Jesus who shift the gravity of whatever room we walk into. Let's join the conversation. All right, hey everybody, welcome to the show. I'm here with uh, Ryan Bramlett and our special guest, Steve Cuss. We are uh, finishing up today our leadership conference, and Steve has been so gracious to join us for the day. Steve, thank you so much for being here and sharing all of your wisdom and insights uh, with our people. It's been absolutely amazing. It's been a blast. It's been a great lineup of people, too. It's been fun to listen as much as teach. So, yeah, glad to be here. Yeah. Well, Steve, you are a pastor, an author, a podcaster, uh, a father, a husband. Uh, tell us just a little bit about uh, who you are and where you're from. Sure, yeah. So I was born and raised in Perth, Australia, west coast of Australia. Mm. And uh, I grew up completely outside the church. So none of my family, to this day, my sister and I are the only believers in our family. Oh, wow. So we're like an emotionally really close family, but faith-wise we're you know, worlds apart. Mm. Um, So yeah, I came to faith as a teenager. My sister led me to Christ and really felt a call to ministry. And the short story is I I think I'm on this earth to reach people like my family, like really salt of the earth people who are intellectual skeptics. You know, Mm. they trip over their thoughts about what Christianity is and isn't. Wow. And then, of course, my book, what I'm known for now is Leadership Anxiety. Yes. Um, cut my teeth on that as a trauma chaplain in a hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of got on the deep end of it. And then I studied this thing called systems theory, which some people know about and some don't, that mm-hmm. I found really helpful in just helping people sort out their anxiety and relational anxiety, stuff like that. Well, and yeah, amazing. local church pastor. Yeah. On top of that, so well, I am so envious of your accent. Mm. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, my yeah, my family would say it sounds very American. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When I first moved to America, I spoke Aussies speak really quickly. Yeah. Uh, so when I'm around Aussies, I speak quickly, and people just couldn't understand me, Aaron. So, mm. and then we also use a lot of slang. Uh, and I actually regret it. To be quite honest, I've removed so much slang from my vocab. Mm. I kind of regret it now. But in order to <laughs> preach in Tennessee, where I first started, yeah. I had to do it. Yeah. 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 That's amazing. Well, um, I've read your book and it has been so helpful to me. Awesome. Uh, I was able to share this with you a little bit earlier today. Um, it was about a year ago. Uh, I heard you on another podcast, a mutual friend of ours, uh, Steve Carter. Yeah. And when I got done with that podcast, I had to pull my truck over and just stop and just say, what did I just listen to? Yeah. And I forwarded it to all of our elders and said, hey, guys, uh, if you're wanting to crawl inside my skin to know what I'm thinking and how I'm feeling, this is a pretty good description. And so I just want to thank you formally just for the gift that you are to so many yeah. and how you're able to put words to something that I think many of us feel but don't know how to articulate. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a bit spooky, Aaron, because when you were up speaking today, you were laying out your teenagehood of, of girls, sports, and academics. I'm like, yeah, I'm exactly like you. <laughs> like it is a, a common thing. And I, I actually wonder in pastors, I know in my journey, there was a season where I wondered why I was a pastor. Mm. Like early in my mm. journey, I was like, well, God's called me. Mm. And then there was a season I'm like, oh, it's because I'm dysfunctional. Mm. <laughs> and then I think I realized, well, God redeems everything, you know, and, yeah. and both are true. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I definitely wrote the book to be a relief to leaders in the workplace mm. and home place. So I'm mm. glad. What are some of the things, I mean, right now, obviously, you know, we live in a 
current context of high, high anxiety. Yeah. What, what are you seeing some of the trends and some of the triggers of that anxiety within leaders today? Yeah, what a great question. Uh, and it's a big question. Um, the, the founder of the theory I study, systems theory, he actually has eight concepts he lives by. One of them is called societal regression. Mm-hmm. It's actually his last concept, but it's the simple idea that if anxiety spreads in a group and a society is a group, then society gets more anxious over time until it topples as a culture. Mm. Uh, So I think Murray Bowen, uh, he came up with that in the 1960s. I don't think you'd be surprised at all today. Mm. Um, So, you know, things like the January 6th insurrection can be explained through the lens of societal regression. Mm. I think on a granular level, uh, I think we can all feel when we've stopped listening to another person. Mm. That's a tool we teach in my workshops is... You can actually feel when you move from listening to learn, which you're curious, you're open, and then you move into listening to defend or listening mm-hmm. to hijack, or for a lot of guys, we listen to fix, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, those would be signs that you're anxious. So there's a whole set, but that I think on a granular level, you can kind of check your listening posture mm-hmm. and then you're on a societal level, man. Um, it's just getting harder, isn't it? It's getting harder to have conversations about things that matter. Yeah without reactivity showing up. Yeah. 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 I totally agree with that. Yeah. Um, I think you did a great job. I mean, in all of your work, when you talk about anxiety, it like, it's a very broad look. And I think like you were saying, most people have a very narrow view of it. Uh, and even how it shows up, um, you had a line where you said, your body doesn't know how to lie. Yeah. And I would just love if you could just kind of unpack what that is and how anxiety shows up within us. Because I think most people feel it, but don't know or can't place like that's, oh, that's anxiety. That's right. Yeah. Especially those of us that don't see ourselves as warriors, Mm. which I didn't used to, but like my anger, uh, my need to be right, like all of that, that's anxiety. My Mm. need to take charge. I talked about that a bit today. Mm. Um, Yeah. So our body never is incapable of lying. Mm. It's a great truth teller. And um, the kind of anxiety I work in is what's clinically known as chronic anxiety. Mm. So it's really important, guys, to, to delineate because, you know, we'll have listeners that do have trauma or grief. Um, those are different. Mm-hmm. Chronic anxiety is like your garden variety relational tension that you feel, but it's also the anxiety about your own way you see yourself. Mm-hmm. So like if uh, the expectations I have about myself, like, one of the things I shared in the workshop today is my need for every sermon to be the best sermon you've ever heard. (laughs) And it's untenable, but it doesn't stop me from living out of that belief. Mm -hmm. So, um, so chronic anxiety, it doesn't begin in our body. It begins in our beliefs, Mm -hmm. but I found over the years, uh, noticing it in your body is really helpful. Mm -hmm. So it's spinning mind, racing heart, tightening body. And then some people say, well, it's all three. Mm -hmm. And, and so the question is, all right, well, where does it start for you? Because if you can figure out where it starts, you can then intervene quicker. Because mm-hmm. anxiety won't dissipate on its own. Chronic anxiety won't dissipate on its own. It has to be displaced. Mm-hmm. So if you can learn to pay attention to your body, you can then kind of pause and invite the gospel in quicker. Mm. Yeah. That's good. Mm-hmm. 
You know, um, you said something in your book that uh, actually had to just like stop and kind of rethink this because, you know, we so often will talk a lot about emotional intelligence and this idea of like self-awareness. And, you know, you're with somebody, you're working with somebody, talking with somebody, you're like, man, they're just not self-aware. And you said something, I wrote it down in your book. You said self-awareness is critical, but not the path of growth. It's simply the gate. Mm -hmm. We unlock it and walk through, but on the other side of self-awareness is difficult work that brings deeper freedom for us and those we serve. Yeah. You talk a little bit more about that and maybe even kind of, uh, you also talk about like anxiety spreads and like these like four spaces, but talk a little bit more with us about that concept. Yeah. It's funny. I I mean, I do think self-awareness is essential. I think if you're not self-aware, you are on the narcissism scale. Mm. So it's it's definitely a problem, Mm. but I just see so many people, how do I say? I feel like they hide behind self-awareness. Like they don't actually care Mm. how they impact other people. So I think I just kept running into people who would use language like, well, this is just the way I am. Yeah. They do that sometimes abrasively. And meanwhile, their team is a wreck. But they'd even blame God. Well, God made me this way, so you have to deal with my shadow side. I'd also run into people. We had a college intern who she went through our class at our church on this stuff. And and it really helped her to look at, she saw herself as an introvert. She was a musician. Mm. And so she saw herself as always having to have time alone. Mm. But we were saying, well, let's just examine, do mm. you actually need as much time alone? What was going on is in her host home, she wasn't greeting the host family mm. because she didn't think she had the emotional energy to even engage them. Mm. So, okay, there's self-awareness that's negatively impacting people. I'm interested in the gospel, which really is that I can do all things through Christ to give me strength. Mm. So I'm interested in saying, okay, yeah, you do need alone time. You're not a raging extrovert. Do you need as much alone <laughs> time as you think? And she was kind of in the, almost like a slave to that way she saw herself. Yeah. Mm. So I don't know if that translates, but that's kind of yeah. where I'm pushing for. Let's test your assumptions and see what's on the other side. I think it. people can use that with like any of the, you know, the personality inventories. Well, I'm just yeah. an Enneagram, whatever. And that's right. the way it yeah. is. I'm, I'm an ISTJ. So, you know, deal with yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. And you can use that to excuse yourself from being people. I, I, just, yeah. I can't imagine Paul saying, well, I'm an Enneagram eight. So therefore, yeah. <laughs> like, I really think Paul's like, well, someone's got to do it and mm-hmm. I'm going to do it. I mean, even, I don't know if you found this, Aaron, but like lead pastoring is like 50 different jobs mm-hmm. that just have to get done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and I only enjoy a few of them. That's, that's the <laughs> truth, right? Is you actually only enjoy a small handful, but in yeah. order for the whole thing to work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, you said that the two best displacement efforts are love and laughter. And then you hinted at this idea of what you called a life-giving list. Life-giving list. I yeah. would love to know more about that, yeah. what it is, and what's on it for you. Yeah, yeah. So as a pastor, I started to notice uh, my lifelong battle to experience the love of God for myself. Mm-hmm. I was really good at proclaiming it to others, and I didn't fundamentally believe it for myself. So I really got into this. This is several years ago now. And I realized, okay, what's going on is I'm relating to God more as God's employee than God's child. And God has all these gifts that he's given me, but I only ever see them as as gifts to give to others. Mm. And so I'm constantly giving away God's gifts. And this is not selfless. I believed it was selfless. That's ridiculous. So... I went on a bender on the love of God. I, I, I got fed up. This isn't that long ago, seven years ago, eight years ago. Mm. 
is like, I can't keep pastoring. I can tell you that God loves you in a way that will make you cry in a sermon. And it wasn't hitting my heart. And there's mm-hmm. a long, complex reason. I'm happy to get into it. It's just not a simple reason. But um, I thought, well, what if I make a list of every gift God's ever given me that I cannot use for ministry? Mm. Like I cannot give it away. Mm. So it's like, so, and then it became like a game. My wife's hug. Sitting on a couch, my leg is on my wife's thigh. We're watching a movie. Mm. Um, my dog's floppy ears. The taste of a lint, piece of lint chocolate. I play guitar. Playing guitar or listening. Like on the way over this morning, I put on a particular album that is life-giving to me. So now I've got 160-odd items on my list. Mm-hmm. And it's people, places, and activities. And it's just the reminder that God loves me lavishly. Like look at all these gifts he's poured mm-hmm. on me. And what was interesting when I was on sabbatical, um, like theology for me is one of them. I love reading theology, mm. but I would always have an eye on the pulpit. Yeah. So I said, okay, and whatever I read on sabbatical is just for me. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to even bank it for later. Mm-hmm. That was hard because mm-hmm. uh, of the pressure of output of sermons. So that's the life-giving list. I, I, I think because God's invisible and because some people talk about God like he's right there all the time, like there are certain faith leaders that make it sound like them and Jesus are like Moses. Mm -hmm. That's not been my experience. Uh, I have felt the mystical love of God a number of times in my life, but not as often as I would like. Mm -hmm. So it helped me to to realize that this invisible God is closer to me than the air I breathe. Mm -hmm. I just need some, I need to trip over it more. Mm -hmm. So what I do now is I try to build about 15 life-giving encounters a day. Mm -hmm. So I listen to stand-up comedy every day. Hmm. Uh, Love stand-up comedy. Yeah, yeah, because laughter is a gift from God. Yes. Uh, delicious food is a gift from God. Mm. And then there's some more complex ones, some some life-giving items you have to budget time and money for. Mm-hmm. So they're on the list as well. Mm-hmm. Then as a family, it gets really practical. You all do a life-giving list. Mm. You do things on each other's list. Yeah. So for my wife, old-school stovetop popcorn. Hmm. So if I make the popcorn, it's like, serving her and uh, it's a kind yeah. of a double win. Mm-hmm. Um, so we all have like these micro items, these little 30 second to one minute. And then we have these like five day and $3,000 items. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then you can, you know, as your budget, it's so simple. No, yeah, but, but it's really good. Changed my life. Yeah. 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 I love that. Cause I went and did a life plan a few years ago. And what mm. part of the life plan was like, what are your replenishment cycles? That's yeah. how he named it. I know it's an, who did your life plan by the way? Um, Doug Parks. Oh yeah. What a yeah. guy. Yeah. That's an incredible tool. Yes. Yeah. I need to go do another one just to refresh that. Yeah. But that was one of the more insightful uh, things that I learned from that time with him yeah. is like, Hey, what are your life cycles or your replenishment cycles? Because leadership isn't getting any easier. Yeah. So it's like, it's kind of like pulling over at a gas station and getting filled up. Like yeah. you've got to fill up in, in a way to keep going. Yeah. And I think you have to give yourself permission to be human. Yeah. Uh, I, the other thing, I, I don't know if you guys are like this, but I don't fundamentally see myself as human when I'm a pastor. So like when I grieve, I'm mostly thinking about how to let my congregation... Well, like we had a number of people in our church die when mm-hmm. we were really small and we all felt it. And several of them were my dear friends. Mm-hmm. So I'm burying my dear friend on Saturday and then I'm getting up on Sunday and leading my church. It's not selfless. It's really dangerous, but I didn't let myself grieve. Yeah. So I do think as pastors, we need this kind... We need permission, I guess, to... Yes. To say, hey, COVID was hard. I'm less productive than I was, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. <laughs> it's all right, you know. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. What are you seeing? Like, you know, we talk, there's a lot, there's a buzzwords around like burnout and, you know, what, what are you seeing there around? Like, you know, whether it's, there's a lot of pastors burning out. You had a conversation earlier today just about the number of pastors you want to quit. And I think all of us would say that that thoughts pass through our mind at least once, you know, in our ministry. But when it comes to leaders of any, in any sector, uh, what do you think are some of the leading causes of burnout and how do we prevent that? Yeah, I, I actually think the leading cause of burnout is unaddressed chronic anxiety. Yeah. I mean, we definitely take the risk of a guy like me kind of seeing everything through one lens. Yeah. I, I don't think I'm that guy, but but I think the, the fallacy of burnout is we think it's workload related. Yeah. But every leader I know that I respect gets motivated by a big workload. Mm-hmm. I, I actually get lazy when I don't have too much to do. Mm-hmm. So I don't think what's workload related. I think it's that when COVID happens and four times as many critics come out of the woodwork as before Mm. and we haven't addressed our need to please everybody, Mm. it puts pressure on us. I think, I don't remember, Aaron, if it was a hallway conversation you and I had or you said it from the stage today, Mm -hmm. but you made a comment about, um, you know, when you're going to make a leadership decision that you're going to get hit from someone. Yeah. And if you haven't addressed the need to be liked, for example, Mm. you're not going to make it. You were talking about how COVID just like Mm. tripled down the pressure. Mm. So these unhealthy things just got exposed. Yeah, brought it it to the surface. That's it. Yeah. That's what I think um, Mm -hmm. is why people are burning out is because they were tolerating what they never should have tolerated. And then this last couple of years just... It forced it out. When I was a chaplain, the chief chaplain pulled us aside and he's like, look, the emergency room doesn't create crisis. It just exposes the crisis the family was in before. Mm-hmm. So he's like, you know, Jimmy has a car accident and the family come in. Whatever condition the family was in before the car accident is exposed by the accident. Mm. I think that's the last two years. Yeah. And I was talking to, I have a leadership coach that I talk to um, on a regular basis. And he said, uh, he, he said, you know, you're going to need to get used to the fact that, um, people are going to continue to hurt you at an ever increasing rate, especially in the cultural climate that we're in. He made this comment. He said, when people are hurting, they take it out on their leaders. Yeah. And I thought that was a interesting uh, comment. And I think even like, it's, it's always fascinating to me where I have somebody who is just furious with me yeah. um, digitally. Yeah. And then I see them in person and it's a different animal. Um, like I had a guy that was just, you know, reaming on me, uh, on social media. I thought, man, you know, we ain't going to be friends again. And I bumped into him just a couple of weeks ago and he just comes up, Hey man, how's your family? How's it going? I'm like, this is mind blowing to me. And I think for me, it's like to recognize that wasn't personal. Uh, in fact, uh, what it causes for me to actually have an increasing amount of compassion for him. Cause I'm like, that's, that's a guy that's in pain. Um, I don't know how you feel about this. My wife and I were talking about this the other day. It's like when when we end up reacting, um, that's uh, out of our pain. Yeah. When we respond, that's the spirit of God prompting yeah. us. And that's the difference between the two. I and think, so it's like when I have somebody go off on me, I think there's a, there's a, there's a part of me as a younger man, I wanted to fight them. Yeah. Like I don't yeah. I don't pick fights, but I meet them. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll fight you if you're going to pick it. And now it's like I want to step back, take a deep breath, and have some compassion and go, this is coming from a place of pain. Yeah. And I don't, it's not about me. I need to step out of that. Yeah, I really like that. I think it's really insightful. And I think I would add, if that person is 
constantly treating you that way, it's actually a gift to them for them to understand the impact of their behavior. Yeah. Like everyone loses it once in a while. I, I get it. But I've had people, and it's never many people, but they, I am their punching bag. Yeah. And I think early in my ministry, I felt like that was part of the job. And then I realized I'm shortchanging their spiritual uh, transformation. Had the very painful conversations of telling them, look, you hurt me. Yeah. And I think where it gets tricky, Aaron, is when you're like, in our case, like the lead pastor, we carry all this power and authority that we're not always aware of. Yeah. So those conversations can do damage. Yeah. But I'm just trying to help people see I'm a human being. Yeah. And I've had some of those conversations being incredibly redemptive. Yeah. Because they just forget. Yeah, right. right. They, they do treat the leader as kind of a safe person. It's like a toddler, right? Like when your kids are young and they go to someone else's house and the, and the parents drop your kids back off, oh, they were perfectly behaved. Right. And they come home and they're terrible. <laughs> um, it's kind of the way it can yeah, be very with similar. leaders. Yeah. And, and you saying that actually jarred a memory of mine that I had forgotten. This was tremendously helpful. And I'm actually glad, glad that we could be in person for me to thank you for this. Mm. Because it was part of the uh, your interview with Steve Carter on the podcast, mm. where I believe you said, if people in your church are beating up on you, you need to tell them. Yeah. And I remember that was so profound for me. And uh, we were in a series called Dirt. We were uh, t- unpacking the, uh, the parable of the seeds. And we got to hard hearted the hard soil. Mm. And I was talking about how, um, you know, sinister a hard heart can be and how it can sneak in. And and so then I began to just share with our church. I said, Hey, one of the things for me during COVID is I've began to gradually become hard hearted and here's why. And I started to walk through all the criticisms. Every yeah. time I turned around punched yeah. in the face, no matter what I said, if I said something, if I didn't say something, I'd get lit up. And I said, I just want all of you to know that I was getting hard hearted towards all of you. Mm. Yeah. And I just let it sit and it was real quiet. And I actually had maybe um, a dozen or more emails, texts, and DMs from people saying, I'm so sorry. Like I had no idea that it was affecting you that way. Yeah. That was actually a gift. I just wanted to thank you for yeah. that. You, oh, you sharing yeah. that thought, it gave me the courage to go, I need to tell them. I think that's the thing is, is one of the sciences of, of anxiety is a power and responsibility imbalance. Mm-hmm. So when people have a lot of power and they're not responsible, mm-hmm. then they keep staying in the cycle. And it's kind of this thing is like, if people don't realize the power of their words, mm-hmm. you know, you think they should, but some people just don't. Mm-hmm. It is a gift to them to show them. I just think, yeah, you gotta be careful because it's not combative, vindictive. Like you said, you're not looking for a fight. Yeah, It really is meant to be redemptive, not just for them. It's not like a condescending. Mm-hmm. I, I'm talking about redemptive between me and them. Yeah. There's one guy in particular, it was really hard for me to tell him he hurt me. It's just hard for a dude to tell another dude, <laughs> you hurt me. Brian does it all the time. It's a, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah it's, it gets annoying, actually. But, uh, but I thought the relationship was worth the risk, and uh-huh. um, and it was. He uh-huh. came back later, and he's like, I, I didn't know. Yeah. And what was redeemed, aside from him learning about himself, was us. Because mm. rather than me getting up and kind of committing anger in my heart every time I see him, like he's he's a brother. Yeah, um, so that's so good. Even for my own pettiness, I think it's been a gift. Yeah, yeah, that's so good. Well, I wanted to uh, begin to kind of land the plane here a little bit and uh, kind of circle back to once again something else that you said in the book that I thought was so good because I'm a uh, you know a child of the '90s mm. and you know back growing up and remembering the trends of the WWJD bracelets and all of that. And you said something to the book about how the goal is not to become like Jesus. Yeah. You've never met anybody in the church that's 
arrived and been like Jesus, yeah. but the goal is to manifest him. And I thought that was, once again, it was refreshing and it was so profound. Can you double click on that a little bit and expand what you mean? Yeah. Um, I, I think human beings are capable of, of taking anything and turning it into legalism. Mm. Yeah. And I think legalism is just self-righteousness. And I think self-righteousness is actually the chief competitor to God. So I think mm. we either stand on self or we stand on Jesus for our well-being or righteousness, mm-hmm. that'd be kind of it in a nutshell. And and so I think there is Christ-likeness language in the New Testament, but when you study it, there's two things. It's always in the passive voice in the Greek. So it's something done to us, like being baptized, mm-hmm. something done to us. And the second thing is it's always God's job after we die to ourselves. Mm-hmm. So my kind of my pithy way of saying it is I think we get further by dying than trying. Mm-hmm. So if you're an impatient person, you read the fruit of the Spirit, and you're like, oh, I'm not very patient. What happens, because humans are always legalistic, is we start working on becoming more patient. Mm. But at the end of that endeavor, you're just a more patient legalist. Mm. You're not actually transformed at all by the Spirit. So I'm just trying to coach people to say, why don't you go deeper, figure out what it is you want that's making you impatient, Mm -hmm. and die to that. Mm. Now, it's God's job because it's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of the Steve, in my case, like Mm -hmm. if I'm trying to become more patient, that's the fruit of the human. So it's subtle, but to me, it's life changing. I don't think we'll ever be like Jesus because like he's he's the one we worship. He's the king proclaimed several times today. Mm -hmm. Jesus is king worthy of our worship. That's because he's so otherly different than us. So the idea that we can be like him, if you get really sophisticated, becomes a projection of our ego. Mm. We make Jesus into our image, you know, mm. and try to then be like that. So yeah, I'm real suspicious of it. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah. Any uh, uh, word of encouragement you give to um, someone that's just really paralyzed with anxiety right now? You know, truly, if someone's truly paralyzed by it, I, I highly recommend clinical Christian therapy. Yeah. Um, my wife's a therapist and I'm a pastor. Oh. And seeing the tools that she has versus the tools I have, I'm out of my league. Mm. So if someone's truly paralyzed by it and the way they're paralyzed mm. is they're not able to progress in life. They can't get over this thing. I think they should get professional help. If someone is more the kind of the next level down, which is my level, that garden variety, irritation, self-condemnation stuff, um, it, it's it's a long journey and you just, you have to learn to think about the way you think. Hmm. And then I think you do need a small group. Hmm. So you're, if you have a church small group and have this conversation that the three of us had, so where you can all kind of me to it together, yeah. that'd be the next step. Yeah. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah. If uh, people are interested in learning more about you and your resources, where can they go? Yeah, stevecusswords.com is my website. My last, <laughs> really? yeah. my last, uh, last name's Cuss, and there's nothing we can do about it. So it's such an unfortunate last name as a pastor. You know, it's funny in Australia, Cuss doesn't mean anything. So I came to America, I was like, oh, here we go. Uh, so stevecusswords.com, and yeah, I do corporate training and stuff if people want to engage me for like team management and things like that. Oh, excellent. That's great. Yeah. We'll have all that in the show notes. And uh, Steve, thank you so much yeah, for thanks for uh, having investing your whole day chat. with us at the Leadership Conference and spending a little time with us here on this podcast. We really, really appreciate you, your uh, impact and uh, your influence upon so many of us. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks, thanks you. guys. Yeah, we'll see you next time.